The Eco Right Speaks podcast is your conservative home for weekly climate news, interviews, points of view, climate heroes, jesters, and so much more. We'll share the stories of people leading in their local communities and around the country. Welcome to the Eco Right Speaks podcast. It's brought to you by RepublicEN.org. Hello, and welcome to the Eco Right Speaks, your climate podcast produced by the team at RepublicEN.org. As always, I'm your host, Chelsea Henderson. At the time of recording, our friends in Texas are suffering some of the worst winter weather to challenge the state in a generation. In fact, my son reported that his sweetmate, born and raised in San Antonio, had never seen three whole inches of snow, which fell earlier this week. While he's lucky to have power at school, many Texans aren't so lucky. And I wanted to share with you this quote that I read from Joshua Rhodes, who's an expert on the state's electric grid at the University of Texas. He said, no one model, no one's model of the power system envisioned that all 254 Texas counties would come under a winter storm warning at the same time. And I just wanted to sit with that for a second. Listeners, we are going to let everyone recover from this historic storm, and then we will work to have some experts come on the show to talk about what Texas did right, what they might have done wrong, and how climate change had an impact. For today's show, I'm pleased to bring you my conversation with Bob Perciseppi, the president of the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions, known as C2ES. Bob has been an environmental policy leader in and outside of government for more than 40 years, most recently as deputy administrator of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency under President Obama. He's a respected expert on environmental stewardship, natural resource management, and public policy, and has built a reputation for bringing stakeholders together to solve issues. I hear you ask, Chelsea, why did you bring a former Obama official onto the show? Well, listeners, I wanted you to hear that there are Democrats who aren't all in on advocating for the Green New Deal. Bob and C2ES's work with the business community and with international partners will have a significant impact on the direction of climate policy in the U.S. Plus, he's just really fun to talk to. He has been around and he's got some stories. Since this is a longer than usual episode, without further ado, I present my conversation with Bob Perciseppi. All right, listeners, welcome back. I'm here speaking with Bob Perciseppi, as I promised you. Welcome to the podcast, Bob. Hey, great to be here. So I'm going to age myself a little bit and say that C2ES, I still think of as the Pew Center on Climate Change. Well, that's not an unreasonable thing to think about because uh, we've been around for 20 years and about half of that time, it was the Pew Center on Climate Change. And about half that time, it's been the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions. The big swing there was Pew Charitable Trust decided not to support it anymore. Right. You kind of got kicked out of the Pew family, unfortunately. <laughs> but anyway, you've always, the center, whatever the name of the organization is, has just always done fantastic work on finding that nexus, I feel like, between what the business community could support on climate change and what the policies are that are out there that are realistic. And I thought maybe you could just spend a few minutes talking to our listeners about why it is important to have that buy-in from business. Yeah, well, I, I think you, you hit the nail on the head there, Chelsea. The, the Pew Center was created in the 1990s as a, as a venue to bring uh, some of the corporate voices I mean, actually, it was a two-way street, trying to convince some of the corporate voices that they need to take this seriously for their long-term you know, financial stability, um, and uh, also to get them more active to being able to advocate for policies that will help them uh, achieve uh, you know, a reasonable approach to solving the climate problem. Well, we're 20 years down the road since that started, and now we have about 30 years left before we had 50 years to get to the middle of the next century when we need to be pretty much decarbonized. Wait, how are it's, we? How are we 30 years away from the middle of the century? That's crazy. You just blew my mind. Uh, well, 
time flies yeah. and you're not getting the bill done that you need. To <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's another important thing uh, that you learn from spending time with the business community. And that is, there probably is no silver bullet or one bill. I mean, you just said, get that bill passed. Well, there's probably a couple of good core things that could be done, but there's not going to be one. But let me go back to the business question you asked. You know, as this 20 years has progressed, and even more so in the last, let's say, six years, you see more and more companies, and we like to say particularly companies that are on our business council. We have 37 companies on our business council. And I'll just point one out. I mean, I could point them all out for taking leadership. But to be on our business council, they have to agree to four things. The first one I thought when I took this job seven year, almost seven years ago that we could lose the first one. The first one was climate change is real. <laughs> so I figured, well, we better keep that for a little while longer. <laughs> Second was that they would do something in their own companies to mitigate their emissions. Third, and this is really important, they would advocate for a mandatory national policy, particularly mandatory national policy that had a market based component to it. And then fourth, that they were in favor of a global agreement that could be used to begin to level the playing field globally because many major corporations in the United States, I'm gonna say most large Fortune 500 companies in the United States, unless they're a power company with a specific geography, has a, a, a pretty strong global interest. And I wanna say even a power company with a geographic area that they work in, an electric company, they know that the Biden administration has to have a new um, nationally determined contribution for the Paris Agreement. And they're gonna be really responsible for a big hunk of it. So I can tell you for a fact that even though the power companies don't necessarily you know, sell their electricity globally, uh, they don't, um, they are very involved and very, yeah. and very, yeah, they have a stake in what we do domestically because they know it's going to be part of how we get the rest of the world to move forward. So getting that business voice in the last five years, let's say, has been a really, it's been actually a lot of fun because what, what you're seeing is more and more companies, more and more C-suites um, really being driven to look to that future. And, I, and one of the things I like to say, Chelsea, is that I think in most major companies these days, they are looking hard at what the economy and the society is going to be like in, 20, in 2050. They're not looking at what the society and business was like in 1950. And, and I really think that this is an important distinction. There, there was a, um, it was a, uh, I think it was a, I can't remember which one of the pollsters did some polling recently that showed, you know, some conservatives, Republicans have been losing their uh, support for businesses. And, and I think one of the comments was, well, businesses are now getting into all this, the, the, you know, their, their equity and they've been supporting Black Lives Matter. They've been taking positions on climate change, taking aggressive goals, you know, and this is, uh, turning turning off uh, some of the conservatives, and I, I think I think it, it conservatives aren't leaving the business community. The business community is leaving them because the business community wants to be making money, you know, in the future, not in the past. And 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 I think that that's that's something that's really uh, pretty important. And I think it's now ever more so important because really moderates are going to make this happen, whether it's the Democratic moderates. Um, like Cinema uh, uh, from uh, Arizona and Manchin from West Virginia or the Republican moderates like Murkowski. Um, uh, or, you know, the, the, these, are, uh, these are the people um, that um, have to come together for, the, for something to happen in the United States Senate. And, and business, they, they will listen to, to businesses and businesses can give them advice on why it's important to the businesses. So, um, right, and I, I think I, it was just like a week or two ago that the Chamber of Commerce, which has not traditionally been in favor of um, any sort of climate legislation, and and famously about ten or twelve years ago, had a lot of big uh, members leave because of their stance on climate change, 
And now they're saying that they are open conceptually to a market based approach to climate, which to me, even though it wasn't super specific, but it was a huge movement from where they had been and set the signal, I think, for other groups to say, or other businesses to say, yeah, I, this is the future. And people want that certainty, right? They want to know, what do I need to plan for in 2050? Yeah, and, and you know, um, the business roundtable is another example uh, that, that CEO, a CEO-oriented business group, um, uh, who has uh, come out uh, with this, uh, this, uh, this, these kinds of positioning. And, How you much know, overlap is there between the people on your business council and people in the business roundtable and the chamber? You know, I've never done a complete, uh, a complete uh, overlap, but probably pretty high. I mean, we have you know, General Motors and Bank of America, J.P. Morgan Chase, BP, uh, you know, Duke Energy, Southern Company. So a lot of the yeah. old U.S. cap companies. Yeah, and the, the companies that have a huge stake in what the solution is. These are the people with skin in the game. For sure. You know, uh, and there's nothing against retailers, you know, out there trying to, you know, decarbonize their, their operations and everything else, but but these people have to change their business model. You know, the Dow Dow Chemical has to use feedstocks that are from the earth and uh, have large heat volume heat uh, to uh, do the cracking of the molecules they need to do to make the, the many things that we use in modern life. Cement companies, uh, Lafarge Holston is on our. I mean, you know, they're looking at ways to have cement that when it cures, it pulls carbon dioxide out of the air or how to do carbon capture at the cement kiln. You know, uh, this is what's different now, I think. Not only are they committing to these higher level strategies, uh, you know, we're in favor of some mandatory market-based, we'll do stuff in our company, but they're actually pegging goals. They're actually saying, look, we're going to get, we want to get to it. And I think one of the sea changes in the last five years has been in the past when they would say, you know, maybe you'd have a CEO say, you know, I, I really think it'd be good for us to be out there on this. I think we should be, you know, if we get out there, it'll start driving innovation in our company. We need to do that. And, you know, the engineers and the technical people and the science people say, well, you know, we know how to get to like 70%. But we have no idea how to get to 100%. If you go out there and commit to 100%, you know, the analysts on Wall Street will get a little agitated. And, you know, if, they, if you don't know how to do it. Well, this is one of the big sea changes, I think. You know, when I started in the pollution control business, so the 1990 Clean Air Act amendments, and I started working at EPA in the Clinton administration in the early 90s, uh, first in water, then, then running the air program in the 90s. It was this huge to-do list given to me by a bipartisan group of members of the Congress, a huge bipartisan margin, a big to-do list of telling industry what to do. You guys got to get to this level. You guys got to do this. You guys got to do that. And, you know, it was, a, it was a constant negotiating and back and forth. And, um, but we don't need to tell these companies now that they need to get, get rid of their carbon emissions. I, we don't have to pass a law saying get rid of your carbon emissions. What we need now is not to tell them what to do. They already know what they need to do. What we need now are laws that will help them do it. Exactly. Programs that will help them do it. That's a whole different thing than so just... Kind of, do you have an example of something that would help move a company that way? Well, let's look at automobiles. Mm -hmm. um, General Motors, um, they, they all have pretty good goals if you look at their websites. But General Motors had made a big deal in the last couple of weeks and had this nice ad in the Super Bowl. Their Super Bowl ad was great. That was, and I will link that in the show notes. That was one of the best. <laughs> I didn't actually watch the Super Bowl, but I saw that ad before. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, General Motors comes out and says, we want to be selling only zero emitting vehicles in 2035. And, and what is really important about that date is it takes about 15 years for all the cars to cycle through. So like all the cars on the road today, 15 years from now, hardly any of them will be, there'll be some historic cars and stuff like that, but most of them will be gone. 
So if you want to have all zero emitting vehicles in 2050, working backwards to 15 years is 2035. Mm -hmm. That was what was so amazing about that. It wasn't so an say, arbitrary, that wasn't an arbitrary date they picked. No. They thought about the right. impact. Right. Yeah. And you want to have everything on the road be zero emitting in 2050, then you have to start selling nothing but in 2035. And then the other ones will fade out each year. A couple of million will go offline. And, and do you think other automakers are going to join them in that? I, I, I don't know, but. Um, but many of them have said they want to get to zero emissions by 2050. They've not really articulated what that means, <laughs> you know, going from today till, till 2050. But, um, but one of the, so going back to the thing, what can the federal government do to have this partnership? So here you have a company that said, look, we, we want to do it. Not only do we want to do it by 2050, we want to have that important milestone of in the half, at the halfway point to you know, really be uh, only selling these cars. Well, they know how to make these cars. You, you and I could go buy one now. They're amazing machines. You know, They have lower maintenance than the internal combustion engine. They don't have millions of high temperature explosions going on every minute. You know, they're, 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 just, they're just copper wire and magnetic forces going around a shaft. I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating the simplicity <laughs> here, but. But, but they know how to build these cars and they're high performing. And, and, uh, and so um, what they need is people buying them. Right. They need the money. And so pr price parity, you know, when the price are similar, there's a lot of things that go into that, you know, margins, you know, people have to make a profit in our system here, which is a strong motivator for people to innovate, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, but roughly sometime in the next, I'm going to say by 2025, could be sooner, with the price of batteries coming down and General Motors wants to build their own battery plant. Again, I'm only using one company as an example. I can go through this with a bunch of different companies, but this isn't a simple one to really explain the partnership kind of idea. So if the federal government makes a big commitment to, to push the system out there for building the infrastructure so the charging stations are out there, put more money into the R&D to get faster charging batteries. You know, it takes a lot of energy to charge a battery fast and the battery has to be able to take that amount of energy and the power company has to be able to deliver that amount of energy to a, to a charging station. I mean, you start getting charging stations that are, that have a amount of electricity going to it, similar to, you know, what a small town in, in somewhere in the middle of the country might've been using in, in 1960s. Yeah. Just for one. Charger. So, you know, we're going to need to have all that working together. And the automobile companies can't make that happen by themselves. You know, so the federal government can put a lot of incentives in place. The federal government could work with FERC and the, and the local uh, public service commissions to let the power companies start investing in, in these infrastructures. They could create incentives for maybe the the oil companies to start investing in these things because they already have the the they already have the sites you know with the with the gas stations and if the gas starts being used less as more and more electric vehicles on the road you know the more that they can provide that they've already gotten into the concept of having a store you know at most of the gas stations so you can go to the store do something while your your vehicle is charging so ch charge time and cost of, you know, range is no longer an issue, range anxiety. I mean, these cars drive three, 300, 400 miles, even the smaller ones will do, you know, 100, 150 miles. The average trip in the United States is, you know, less than 20 miles. Right. It seems like, especially in our densely populated urban areas or like the, you know, whole Eastern seaboard where your cities and your states are all really super connected that you should there's no way you would have to worry about it. Now, maybe if you lived in Montana, you might. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and again, I think, I think uh, the progressive side needs to get their head around the de minimis issue of specialty uses on a, on a ranch or in a farming situation or in some other kind of uh, situation in construction or something, there's going to be a de minimis use of these other kinds of vehicles until such time as maybe the technology even gets better. And, you know, we can use hoverboards or something to go out and check the lower 40, but but my point is that the, 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 the deal to be made is a certainty for the automobile industry going out to like in the mid 2030s, you know, a declining performance standards so that there's some accountability and credibility to the public. 
that this isn't greenwashing or something. And on the other side of the coin, the federal government agrees to help put in place all these other things that are going to help the consumer demand grow. You know, and they're going to have to deal with, uh, you know, the changes in the dealerships and, you know, all that is already starting to happen. I mean, I think, I think you and I could go online right now and buy a car and have it delivered to us. Right. Isn't that great? You can just, like, I forget what that company is <laughs> called, but anyway, there is one that does that, you know? So, um, so I, th- I think that there's the, there's the, th- the same thing in the power industry. There's already, a, you know, the federal production tax credits, investment tra- tax credits, creating a financial dis- move, uh, f- incentives for capital to move into the building of the uh, renewable energy infrastructure and moving that forward. But there needs to be an equal amount of that energy, no pun intended, going into some of the other sources that we're going to need. We're going to probably need to have carbon and capture and storage technology, you know, uses for the carbon, carbon dioxide molecule. I mean, even if, even if, even if a cement kiln was running on 100% renewable energy, it's essentially baking calcium carbonate into lime, which is calcium oxide, and it's baking off the carbon dioxide. So, so even if the heat was coming from renewable energy somehow, um, you know, it'd still be baking it off and you need to, you need to capture that carbon. So we need this technology, both to hedge our bets that there may still be some fossil fuels, most likely uh, natural gas making electricity sometime in the middle of the century, but also uh, for these industrial sources. So the federal government could be putting more resources into that um, while providing the credibility and accountability system to provide the public confidence. And then some funding into the R&D and, and making sure they're a partner in that, in uh, moving, uh, moving those incentives forward. So I use that as an example to answer your question where you, ha- where you have this situation where many companies know they need to do this. They've established a goal. You know, what you see in the fine print of some of those goals these days is, well, we, we need to have some innovation to get to the final goal. And they usually, some of them more astutely will list the kinds of things that they think they'll need. And then they say, which they've never said before, and we're willing to advocate for policies that will help that happen. And and so sort of toward that end, I wanted to ask you about the last, was it just last week, two weeks ago, President Biden had declared it climate day and issued a bunch of executive orders that were related to climate change. And so I'm wondering, you know, first of all, which of those would you think are, are the most impactful? And then also, how do we take that executive action, which is not permanent, right? So in four years, somebody else could come and undo them, as we saw in the last four years. Like, we don't want that ping pong ball, right, of doing and undoing. We need the durability in the action that that moves um, forward. So, so which of those executive orders would are most impactful, and then how do we get durability? Two very easy questions. <laughs> yeah, piece of cake, as they say. Well, um, <laughs> the main executive order that he issued, which is uh, not from Maine, the state, but I mean the the main. I'm one. from Maine, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm from away, <laughs> so. One of the, one of the um, that I think it's almost thirty pages long. It really is a blueprint, and I think the listeners should recognize that. And I have to digress for thirty seconds here on uh, maybe a few more seconds on on executive orders. You know, the the president of the United States is the boss of the two million some odd federal employees who are implementing laws that Congress has enacted. And the president of the United States can't do a law with an executive order. What the president of the United States can do is tell those employees what he would like them to do. And so in the example, let's say, of at EPA, the president would say in his going following the example we were just talking about, the president is the executive order, told EPA, redo those standards for the automobile industry and do it in coordination with the Department of Transportation and consult with all these stakeholders. That's all he did. He told them to do it. Now they have to go do it. And they have to do it under the auspices of a law that Congress passed, in this case, the Clean Air Act, which has very specific and very, I think, 
uh, straight up uh, authorities to to do this for 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 mobile sources transportation. It's a they have clear authority to do it for uh, stationary sources like power plants and industry, but the implementation mechanisms are very um, uh, uh, they're not very elegant. <laughs> and uh, and so uh, you know had the clean power plan in the in the Obama administration. I think uh, Michael Reagan, who is uh, the nominee for who was voted out of committee, I think last night. Yeah, yeah, he did. Um, uh, who's the nominee? It was asked at his hearing last week. What are you going? Are you going to redo the clean power plan? And he said, I I, I don't know. We're going to look at it anew. We're going to try to figure out how to deal with it. I think everybody knows that the clean power plan is. Um, I mean, we could all debate whether it's legally vulnerable because it's, it is an interpretation of an existing law. You know, what is the best system of emission reductions? You know, Congress didn't say what it was. So the executive branch tries to figure it out. Then the judicial branch says, no, that we don't think that's what Congress meant. So that could go on. Uh, um, or they can find another way using some of the other authorities in there. So I don't know exactly what they're going to do, but they're, they're going to look at it. But the key point here for the listeners is they can't do something that doesn't at least have a foot, you know, or, or in, in this case, I hope both feet and both legs in some existing in some existing law. Or alternately, they go to Congress and try to get, you know, an amendment or, or a new law passed to try to provide clearer legal authority. I, I think it's clear. The new law kind of gives you a bigger pond to put your feet in. Right, right. Or 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 that you know it's not acidic and won't burn your toes off or something, you know, so, but, uh, you know, so people have talked about, for instance, well, if you've got the legal authority to do the mobile sources, and that's pretty straightforward, we could haggle over what the numbers should be, and that's what's been going on, but, um, but that's in there. Um, you know, what, what people have thought about maybe for the power sector, if there isn't a price on carbon economy-wide, is maybe a clean energy standard for uh, the power industry, which probably could also be used on some of the issues, some of the emissions, like the thermal emissions from the industrial sector. And a, and a clean energy standard, which essentially would be a percentage of how much electricity is sold, which could be translated actually into a performance standard. And a performance standard could then have tradable, if somebody does better, they can have a tradable element. And so you can create a market component to a clean energy standard. But again, you could have it declining over time so that by the middle of the 2030s, they're about somewhere in there, um, you know, you would have, uh, you know, mostly zero emitting uh, uh, emissions from the power sector, let's say. And, and so those options are open. And I think the um, uh, Biden administration is going to be thinking about those things. The the um, executive order also had instructions to the State Department for getting back in the Paris Agreement and going through a process to determine the nationally determined contribution that, um, you know, depending on when the next conference of parties, parties of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change or the UNFCCC, um, <laughs> which, which the United States Senate did um, Ratified. Um, ratified. Ratified. <laughs> there you go. We've, they did. They did ratify it in, in, 90, in 90, 90? 90. In the, in the early nineties, and Bill Bill Riley uh, uh, of George W. H. Uh, w. Bush administration uh, brought that forward from the Rio Convention in the early nineties, where he was the head of the delegation. And so, um, the UNFCCC. Uh, is a ratified uh, international agreement of which the Paris Agreement is a implementing mechanism for. That's why that doesn't have to get ratified. You know, I, I, you know, trying to get to the reality of these things versus the rhetoric of these things is sometimes helpful. But uh, the Paris Agreement is a pretty flexible thing. In fact, it was negotiated uh, to provide the United States the flexibility it wanted. Uh, you know, the United States, every country gets to pick their own nationally determined contribution. The things that are required are the transparency mechanisms. And so, um, so we're going to, in order for us to be credible and to uh, start to try to be able to influence some of the other countries, it's even harder, like China and India and, you know, uh, the rest of Europe, perhaps. We're energy optimists and climate realists. Stand with us at republicen.org.
Now back to this week's episode. Um, so how how do we? And you already talked about kind of that centrist um, movement in the Senate. So the Murkowski, Collins, Romney, um, Cinema. I don't know where Mark Kelly is if he's kind of along the lines of his delegation mate. Uh, Mansion. Very. You know. I keep seeing that he's the most powerful man in D.C. when it comes to climate change. So you have all these players. What if you had to imagine what they might do over the next two years? And really, I mean, the next year, right? Because once we get into 2022, then we're gearing up for the midterm election and no one likes to give anyone a, a victory. And it gets really messy in Washington. And I imagine messier because of the 50 50 nature of things in the Senate and the close margin in the House. What what can that group realistically do that will have broad support and be effective? <laughs> Your listeners can't see me shaking my head. So, um, I, you know, a lot of this is is a, an evolving dynamic, given what happened in Georgia, mm-hmm. um, and and how that group, um, with all the other forces at play. Right. Uh, can coalesce or not coalesce? There is a climate caucus in the in, right. in the, the in the Ron Senate Coons caucus, yeah. Braun Braun and and Coons and and you know I've had the opportunity to speak to both of them. They're still committed uh, to trying to see things happen. I think you know they may have slightly different views of what could be done. Um, so I think there are two there are two maybe three legislative processes. First of all, going back to the executive order. Again, I gave you two big high-level things telling EPA what to do, but it also has the stuff for the whole government to do. Procurement, you know, buying, buying, uh, you know, electric vehicles, buying lower carbon cement, you know, which the cement industry wants more demand for the things right. they've been, no, the we're creating. The federal government creates great demand for the, yes. for, yes. for innovation. Right. Yes. And that can, you know, and that's been happening to some extent on renewable energy in the, in let's say in the high tech field where you have, you know, the Apples and the Googles and the Amazons of the world making their data centers to be running on, on renewable energy. You know, they're creating demand out there uh, for that stuff. So if you have companies investing in lower carbon alternatives that have a slightly higher margin, let's say, uh, and then all of a sudden the, the federal government says, you know, 20, 30% of all the concrete we use on roads and everything else has to be this low carbon concrete. All of a sudden they're going to be making low carbon, conc- low carbon concrete. So, or cement, I should say, they make the cement and the cement is mixed to make concrete. Right. We should remember that. Um, so the, um, so I think there's the current COVID a relief package, which is very focused still on the hemorrhaging that's going on, you know, uh, uh, and stuff that uh, people have a hard time putting their heads around. There's the unemployment stuff. There's the, there's the vac, you know, the renters that you know are getting uh, kicked out. There's uh, payments directly to people. Uh, more uh, uh, speed on getting getting more of the vaccines. Uh, uh, manufactured and distributed more quickly so we can get further and further into our population being in, inoculated. I'm t- in two days from now, I'm going to have my second shot because I'm over, okay. over 65. So you have that. And then you have a, the second, which will likely be the second uh, budget reconciliation potential uh, coming up later in the year in the fall. And there, I think you're likely to see um some of these elements in there. Don't forget there is the bird rule that you'll get into with Alex Flint if he's one of your future guests, uh, which is what can be in a, in a budget bill and particularly what can be it used reconciliation, reconciliating the programs to the budget goals. And so um, trying to get something in there that is, does not have a, a revenue uh, thing is, is difficult. So. Um, so a clean a carbon tax would would fit in there. Even a clean energy standard that has, you know, the um, the problem with a clean energy standard is once it's a it's a good thing. There's no there's not a lot of collecting money by the federal government. The money exchanges between sources, right? Um, I may I've done a better job 
and I have a credit I can sell for you. Now, the federal government probably have to make sure it certifies these credits, uh, but also the federal government could, could tax the transfer. You know, so it creates a small revenue stream that then would make it germane to the parliamentarian in the Senate, maybe, um, to have it included in a reconciliation bill. So you've got all these things in the air, but these are the kinds of things that could be considered in the second reconciliation bill. Um, maybe a carbon tax, maybe a clean energy standard, maybe some other uh, forces, you know, other tax credits. I mean, things that will motivate the market. I mean, you can motivate the market by making things you want less expensive or things you don't want more expensive and hope that the cap private capital flows following that kind of a low and high pressure system in the, in the, in the atmosphere, the atmosphere of the economy. I mean, that's what we need to harness. Otherwise, we don't, we don't have enough money in the federal treasury to do this. We've got to have private capital moving to these different things. The, um, but they could also have infrastructure in there. They could have uh, transmission lines that move uh, renewable energy from the center part of the country where there's a lot of wind to the, to the coast uh, or from offshore to the coast. Um, you know, uh, permitting improvements, you know, particularly if it's going to include something that will generate uh, revenue. Um, and so these things are uh, all there. But then you also have there may be a separate infrastructure uh, effort that well, I was just uh, going to ask, what's the third? If we, <laughs> and, then the, and then the third could be the, the the beginning of the debate on the farm bill. Oh, I thought you were going to say infrastructure week, <laughs> but farm no, bill. no, no. I think we ran out of that. Didn't we have fifty two already? I, I think we're done. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> so, so um, you know the you know the highway bill and the, the mix but there's you know there's a huge potential in agriculture and forestry to be able to be uh, nature-based solutions there's bipartisan support for that there's bipartisan support for some of these infrastructure things you can get some money into infrastructure at the same time you're trying to create some i'm going to say these words targeted you know permitting uh streamlining you know i i think in my view, you can find some moderate Republican and some moderate Democratic support for targeted. Um, you know, if it's part of the plan, let's let's streamline the permitting for that. You know, you can't completely give up the. You know, we're not going to run it through somebody's you know backyard, but but on the other hand, you know, this broad scale permitting reform or whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, that gets the progressive side all jacked up. And, and, and actually, there's a lot of data that shows, you know, it's usually money that's holding projects up and, or forcing people or, or not making people make decisions about it. So that thing languishes. So, you know, there's stuff that could be done there on, on one side that I think would appeal to the moderate Republican and conservative side, but also appeal to the moderate Democratic and, and progressive side because it's targeted at the things we need to do to get climate change fixed. And so, you know, so you have, um, you have to have some kind of screen that this project is needed for that and then you, you, you get to go. So I, 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 there's, there, these are the kinds of, but in the agricultural area, there, there is support for, I, I think there's a growing carbon solutions, gr yeah, grow, growing, have, uh... growing climate solutions, I think it's the, that is, that's Senator Braun's bill, and, and he has a lot of a bipartisan group of co-sponsors, and we're um, still working with his office to schedule a time for him yeah. to be on the show. And, um, you know, and it, it does seem like we're at the point now where 12 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, solving climate change or talking about climate change, it was an environmental issue, right? And yeah. I think today, given everything that you've just said and everything that we know, it's a transportation issue. It's a business issue. It's a far, it's an agricultural issue. It really is all of the above, not in the energy use sense, but it, it's part of everything now. But, but you also, you know, in the traditional pollution, if you had a sewage treatment plant that was leaking or discharging pollution, it would be the people around that stream that would be affected. And then maybe some of the fishing downstream somewhere. With climate change, everybody's affected. And the other thing that's really important that's in the uh, executive order is setting up processes to deal with climate justice, environmental justice, 
and how these things play out, which is one of the balancing things in there in permit reform and streamlining, as well as uh, some of the things that have to get done to to uh, to mitigate um, to mitigate uh, climate change. But one of the things that's really important here is that without the, when we're mitigating it, we want to make sure there's an equitable sharing of the benefits. There's going to be jobs. There's going to be reduced pollution. We want that to be equitably shared. On the other side of the coin, there's going to be changes in some people's lives. I mean, the fossil fuel dependent, you know, states or communities are, are, are if we're successful at doing this over the next 30 years, are going to see a diminution. You know, you're already seeing it. My brother owns the house that we grew up in. I didn't mean to interrupt you in Maine and they still rely on home heating oil. Yeah. And, you know, but it's not what he would choose to use, but that's the system that he has. And, and so I do think that there are, and probably people wouldn't think of the state of Maine as a state that is reliant on a pretty dirty (laughs) fossil fuel like that. But, um, but there, you know, I think that what you just said about equitably sharing benefits is is, and and what we're talking about here is when you look at Eastern Kentucky or West Virginia or the Dakotas, perhaps as we start to even decline with oil and, and gas. What you need is an economic development program for those places, and and I think one of the things that um, is interesting is. Um, you know, for me to be doing my job currently, I could be almost anywhere in the, in the, in the country. Um, so the question is, you know, we used to say, well, we got to get people who are working in the fossil fuel industry, we have to retrain them. And everybody had these visions of, well, they'll all be solar panel installers or something because there's all these jobs over there. Well, that, there's not that many solar panels being installed in these particular communities. And so the job, this opens up the job training kind of economic development view. You, you could have, you know, I think the term that some people have used, uh, you may have heard this, Chelsea, I don't know, Zoom town. Hmm, I haven't. <laughs> not, not boom town, Zoomtown. but Zoom town where, you know, there, and there are some places that are offering incentives for people to um, actually locate in their town. They have, but what's essential there is broadband. Mm-hmm. And so when you're looking at the infrastructure bills, you know, including broadband and making sure every community in the country has enough broadband to now partake in this emerging part of the economy. I mean, we're not going to, we're going to, we all want to get back to the other part of the economy where we actually talk to each other in the same room, but, <laughs> but, um, but so, you know, so all these things need to be considered here and, and it's, it's not just, uh, you know, the, the more traditional thinking, because as you just pointed out, climate change is a more systems issue, uh, even though it can be translated into certain things like pollution. Um, it really is a system. The, the system of how we have a modern society is going to adjust over the next 20, 30, 40 years. And, um, and, and again, going back to what I was saying at the top of our conversation, most American businesses are looking at that future. Yeah. They're not looking at the past, you know. Uh, you know, I, I use in a talk I did a couple of weeks ago, I showed, you know, when there's oftentimes a knee-jerk kind of, you know, because of the way things are in, in, in the, you know, in the popular press, let's say, um, that you know the environment has caused cost jobs in manufacturing in the United States. I think if you ask people this question on a on a survey, a lot more than fifty percent, yeah, that's probably part of the issue because we keep asking people, "Are you in favor of the economy or the environment?" You know, we keep asking them this question. Well, stop asking I, that question. <laughs> but, so I show a picture of a, a I can't. I think this was Ford Motor Company. I show a picture of a Ford motor company assembly line in 1965. There were literally hundreds of people on the floor and the cars are moving along and there's like hundreds of people and all different races and genders. 
All right, uh, that's what's on the floor there. And I showed a Ford assembly plant uh, from 2020. There were no people in the picture. It was all robots. And they're making the cars faster and there's fewer defects. Now, I, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those people making the cars and there are people now taking care of those robot arms. But my point is the manufacturing approach in the United States and in part of the world has changed because guess what? If you're competing in a capitalist society, you are rewarded for efficiency. And if you can so be a more efficient- To get to that efficiency, right. you have to- Right, right. And so what's happened, whether it's in automobile assembly or any other kind of assembly, we've had um, automation has replaced a, a lot of people, even in the coal, coal mining, which used to be down in the, under the ground, you know, a lot of miners hacking away at it, bringing it up on little carts and having it come up, I mean, and getting that even more modernized. Today, a single huge back backhoes thing out on a surface mine in, in, in Wyoming and a huge truck that's bigger than the building I'm in, you know, two guys or could be a guy and a woman are operating those two pieces of equipment are hauling in every day more than more coal than all of those miners could do. And so you have a situation where today or just in the last couple of years, we're producing in the United States about a, the same amount of coal we were maybe in the 1970s. And, you know, it's gone up and now it's going down. So now we're back at the curve going back. But back then it was like 400,000 people doing it. Now we got about 40,000 people doing it. You know, that's, I mean, the slope in the curve might be a whole bunch of factors, including environmental, but the fact that there are so fewer employees uh, or miners is also due to the mechanization of the industry. So if we're going to go into these areas, the solution is not remove the environmental regulations, let the rest of the whole country get less healthy. The, the, the solution is what's the next economic development program for these places. And if we had been talking about that for the last 30 years, instead of playing this other game, you know, those people would be far better off. And, and that's what we have to get our head around. And that's what I mean by the equitable transition here. The just transition is not just how we do, how do we distribute the benefits of a clean energy economy with jobs and reduce pollution and make sure everybody gets that. And this is the concern that some people in the environmental justice have, community have with uh, you know, market mechanisms. Can somebody buy their way to keep polluting, you know, pay the tax, you know, buy the credits or whatever? And what is the safeguard that that won't all, all be in my community? Because that's what they've been experiencing in their, in their time. So we have to make sure that there's an equitable distribution of those benefits. But we also equally need to make sure that there's a transition that has uh, a real a reality to it now, as opposed to this fantasy that somehow, you know, uh, you know, I guess I feel sensitive to this because I worked at EPA. But, you know, somehow EPA did this to us. Right. And, I, and I think environmental regulations no doubt played a role in all of this but there are also forces at play that far exceed those of of, of environmental regulations and 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 we need to we need to fess up to that bob i want to put you in charge of everything because i feel like <laughs> you are just have a great way of seeing every not just angle but i feel like every crevice um the greater issue of, of climate change and the environment and the connection to the economy and the connection to our societies. And um, it's been such a great pleasure to talk to you. I kept you probably twice as long as I promised I would. I kept waiting for someone to knock on your door. And then I remembered, oh, he's not in an actual office where someone can interrupt him. He's a captive, captive um, guest today. But I think we should touch base in a year and see where things are. And we can talk about all the great things that either did or didn't happen. Hopefully did. I'm going to, I'm, I'm very hopeful. My word of the year is hopeful. So. Well, and I'm hopeful that, um, that saner, saner heads on this big issue and all the big opportunity that it embodies challenges for sure. But why do we walk away from those challenges and, and then also walk away from 
the, the huge opportunities. And I think that I, I have to believe that some sanity will come to bear somewhere in there and that there will be a bipartisan component to this because if, I, I concur with you on the durability side. It'll be much more durable if, if uh, we, can, we can build that. Build that, and so we have a we have a chance to do it. There's certainly, from my own conversations with them, there are plenty of Republican senators who want to do something. It's uh, it's just got it's just a matter of leadership. That's a wrap for another episode of the Eco Right Speaks. A great interview there uh, with Bob Purchaseppi that Chelsea Henderson, our esteemed and illustrious host, brought to you. This week, a fascinating conversation there uh, with Bob Purchaseppi. Once again, thanks to him for taking the time to join us. And we want to thank you all for taking the time to download, listen, subscribe every single week. A new episode coming to you on Tuesdays each week that you can download uh, and subscribe at Apple Podcast. Spotify. Certainly you can get it at Stitcher. Uh, Also on our website, republican.org forward slash podcast. Right there, we've got a listing every single episode right there all at one home, republican.org forward slash podcast. But if you're inclined, we would love to have you leave a review on Apple Podcast. It takes merely a click of the button. One, two, three, four. We love five stars. And if you want to write a comment, we'll read it right here on one of the upcoming episodes of the Eco Right Speak. So I uh, want to also ask you, if you haven't joined us yet, please stand with us. We need you, especially if you are a conservative. Uh, we want to shout out a couple of our new members that have joined on. And like I said, we need you, republican.org forward slash join. Shout out to Jill B. in Michigan, Donald D. in Washington State, Douglas A. in Colorado, Quentin W. in Idaho, and Olivia L. in Virginia. Thank you for standing with us. And also, thank you for listening once again this week. We will be back with another episode next week of the Eco Rights Speaks podcast. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Eco Rights Speaks podcast, brought to you by the team at RepublicEN.org. Make sure to visit RepublicEN.org to learn more and find out how you can be a local eco-right leader.